Welcome back to Coming Up for Air with hosts Dominique Simone Levine, Laurie McDougall, and Kayla Solomon. This podcast is produced with love by the Allies and Recovery team in solidarity with our listeners. Come in and sit with us for conversations on the most pertinent topics for families navigating a loved one's addiction. We created this podcast along with the learning modules and discussion blog in support of you. We salute the work you are doing and your dedication to helping your loved one find a way through. And now, coming up for air. Hi, everyone. Laurie McDougall here. This is the second half of our discussion started in last week's episode. So we're not going to have our usual opening and introductions between Kayla, Dominique, and myself. Today, we're discussing stepping over boundaries or are we helping? Kayla will be ending this episode with her usual summary, but of both episodes from last week and this week. Happy listening, everyone. I'm going to kind of play a little bit of devil's advocate here because Kayla, I'll just let you know, early on when my son was in treatment, I felt like I'm paying for this. And why is it that I, as a family member, shouldn't be able to call you up and say, you know, I think he's having a, I think he's getting ready to have a recurrence. And can we have a conversation about this? And, you know, I really need to know what's going on, what your thoughts are. And I want to share my thoughts. Tell me why it is that you wouldn't want to have that conversation with me. I just feel like there's something very infantilizing about that, that it's disrespectful to the person in treatment. It's also on some level disrespectful to me as a therapist, because it's like you're basically overstepping a boundary here. And a lot of times what I'm hearing from the family member is anxiety. Okay, I'm seeing this and I also think that what it does is it puts you in this superhero role. And, you know, I hate that role. You're all seeing, all knowing. You're a psychic. You're, you've been through this so many times. You could see all the patterns. And it doesn't allow the relationship that I have with my client to actually develop fully. Because I'm having your voice in my head all the time. Well, this mother thinks blah, 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 blah. So it's very distracting for me. I remember years and years ago, I was meeting with this young man who was like 17. He was on probation and his mother was communicating with me, but I had to keep it limited because she was so panicked that every time I listened to her, I would get panicked. And it, I'm not good if my hormones are elevated, basically. So what happened was, I actually stopped talking to this kid about what he was using. And I literally said to him, what gives you meaning in your life? What's important to you? And he's like, I really like playing and writing music. And I barely talked to this kid about using. He would bring in his music. He would like play me his songs. And if I'm listening to his mother, is he out in the meadows using? Probably still. But I stopped caring about that because I felt like my work was to build up the part of him that he had lost touch with. And if I micromanage whether he's using or not using, I'm in the weeds with him. No pun intended, because the Meadows is actually all about weeds. But really, what I need to do is help him find who he is and look at himself in a deeper way and find out what's in the way of him being himself. And I just want you to know, at some point, we stopped seeing each other. And I ran into him in the grocery store where he was stocking shelves and he completely ran up to me and he's like, oh, my God, 
I'm doing this full time. I'm back in school. I'm playing with my band. I'm writing music. I'm doing great. And I was like, oh, my God. And it's because he had gotten back in touch with what mattered to him because you can't stop using until you figure out what, what's more important to you. And so what am I going to say? Are you using? Did you do this? Did you? Then I become his mother. All I'm focusing on is this one part of his life, which is whether he's using or not. And that's such a small piece of who he is. And it's not the piece that's going to provide him a sense of purpose and give him a reason to stop. I'm hearing that, which I totally identify with, but I'm hearing that a lot of families, we often complain about our loved ones not following boundaries, but we have a very difficult time understanding where the boundaries are for us. So we tend to also overstep boundaries a lot. What I'm also hearing is that, and I do think that this is absolutely true, there's a lot of anxiety and fear in the family members that drives their confusion as to what their role should actually be. And I will also share with you, Kayla, I don't know of one family member that feels like they're the superhero at all. In fact, our feeling really tend to feel more insignificant and ineffectual and really totally out of control. And I think it's that confusion and that drives the worry and the anxiety and like this inability to really know what is the right way to go with stuff. And I, I do agree. We tend to think we can mind read. I think everybody does this. I don't think it's unique to substance use disorder, to be honest with you. But he did this because he thinks that. And it's like, well, how do you know he thinks that? You don't know that, right? That's mind reading. And actually, I think doing a functional analysis or our deconstructed functional analysis is what I call it, which is module three on the Allies website. You start to recognize that we actually aren't doing a good job of mind reading as family members and that there's a lot going on in our loved ones' bodies and heads that we are not completely, although we may be lightly aware of it, we're not focusing in on that. And if we were to focus in on that, we might have a better understanding of what drives their behavior and it might help us to release and step back a little bit. Can I come at it from a slightly different perspective as someone who's been working with families for a long time? There's anxiety, there's panic, and there is real danger and a lot of real danger. And I completely hear what you're both saying, Kayla, especially, you know, your long, long experience of of handling families who call you and the clear lines you have set. And on a clinical level, it, it makes complete sense. On a drug shopper doctor's list where my son is getting oxycodone from 10 different doctors, I'm gonna call those doctors and tell them. My daughter tried to commit suicide last night She's still in the emergency room. I'm going to let her treaters know this. We're in a complicated system and and you're going to, as the family member, you're on on your own having to be a judge of everything we're saying. But I have have certainly told families, you know, if, if you feel the treatment provider is really missing it and you have an important piece to offer them, you know, say it into their voicemail and leave it and don't expect a response. At least they feel they've covered a base. At least they've told the doctor, you know, he's getting the same thing from nine other doctors every month. 
you need to know this. It is something the family can do to reduce the risk of what are, you know, very dangerous situations. That's appropriate. Okay. So I have no problem with that, but the families that are contacting me all the time, unless I say, please keep me in touch with what's going on. That's a different story. Then that's included somehow into the treatment. And I see that as we've made an agreement and they're part of the net. Basically, they're telling me what's going on and I'm giving them suggestions about how they could approach it on their end, which is different than they're telling me and they're telling me what to do, because that's when the boundary is crossed. You need to bring that up. You need to talk to them about this. You need to get them to stop. That's inappropriate. And I feel like that's sometimes where the anxiety leads. It's like, excuse me, I've been doing this a long time and some people have not been doing it a long time, but they still need to figure it out. It's really about, you get to tell me whatever you want. And again, I don't care. I'm fine with that. I could ignore it. I could take it in, whatever, but don't expect for me to respond to you unless we have an agreement. And especially now that I'm doing craft, I'm more likely to say, all right, you might, you know, like they'll say, should we take away the breathalyzer? And often what I'm going to say is, what do you think? You know, because I don't know. And that's the other thing is you get to process this and decide. But what I feel like is the most helpful thing that you could do in terms of your behavior is to actually come to the groups and work out various things with the groups about how you might want to proceed, because no therapist has enough time to work that out with you unless you're their client. Okay, I can't do a five minute conversation with you and really figure that out. But you could certainly come to the group and, and there's lots of groups or so go online and ask the question and get a tremendous amount of information about what your choices are, what your options are and proceed. And again, what I see with all of this is there's no right answer. It's not like if I do this, it's going to have this result and then this is going to happen. That's not how it works. I feel like all of this is about trial and error. You try something and that's what... I feel like how everybody gets to where they are. It's like, you've tried something for a really long time and it doesn't work. Okay. Then what craft is about is let's take all the things that you've been doing for years and years and years, telling people what to do, giving them advice, giving them suggestions, doing the 20 questions. Did you use, what did you use? I smell something. Are you, you know, are you okay? What's happening? That nobody answers well, by the way. And what we're doing in craft is saying, okay, here is a new list of possible behaviors you can engage in, try them. You will fail at first because you're not going to be very good at it because you've been doing all these other things and they're your habits. So what we're asking you to do is try things from a different angle, try and fail, try again, look at what went well, really try to modify it, and then notice what you're doing differently that's changing the dynamic and try to keep doing that. And so you're focusing on yourself and your own behavior changes rather than the other person. Because I will tell you the amazing thing about doing craft and watching people who are regulars in the group is people are changing and their changes are having an effect on their loved ones. Oh my God, who knew this is, this is the model. And I have to tell you, I'm seeing the same thing. I'm seeing those naysayers that come into the rest meetings. And, and I don't mean that in a bad way, because often they're, 
they're not sure. They're just so overwhelmed with things. And they're like, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But those that might try something out and then always come back, they're frustrated. It's not working. It's not working. But encouraging them to stick with it and keep going. And now people come in and they're like, it works. I tried this today and things are changing. And I'm seeing the exact same thing, Kayla. I'm seeing people uh, start to change their own behavior and see changes and becoming empowered, which I think, right, you come into the rest meetings, anxiety ridden, full of fear, scared, and and then you try a few things, you're still, you're still scared, you're scared, and then things start to change just a little bit. And people, I, I see it, they become empowered. They come in, they're calmer. Yeah. And they look at the same skills that we've been practicing for a while and we're doing it again and they see them differently and they're like, oh, how can I tweak it? And right, how can I make this better? And that's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing a strength. I'm seeing people becoming empowered. I'm seeing a calmness. And then we have the new members that come in and and what's really good is they can help anchor the new members that are coming in. And now they're the ones that are anxious and scared. And everybody's like, just stay with it. Just stick with it for a while. But also, Lori, what you're describing is what treatment actually is, because I feel like what people do, and this is always the part that that drives me crazy, is they're going to therapy. They went into a residential program and that we expect this miracle to happen that like, okay, the skies open up. And they're going to stop using and they're going to become productive citizens and they're going to be all healed. What? No way. So I feel like what we're modeling in craft by people actually doing the craft work is that's what treatment is. It is a slogging, slow, microscopic process. And as you have all heard me say, it's erosion versus a tsunami. Okay. You know, and I feel like all behavior change needs to be erosion because it's like people who try to lose weight. There are things that you could do where you could lose 20 pounds in two weeks. But as we all know, we've watched, we've all done it or we've watched other people. They could do that. You could do anything for two weeks and then it's unsustainable. And all of the behavior change models are now about what's your mindset? What's your behavior? What choices are you making? Why are you doing that behavior in the first place? How do you get insight into the issues that you have that are causing this destructive behavior? How do you start new habits, which by the way, long slogging process, how do you make, have have a different vision for yourself? And then how do you take the big picture vision and break it down to -to day-to-day activities and choices? That's what treatment is. How do you deal with obstacles? How do you deal with setbacks? How do you bring, I call this, by the way, the bowling alley. To me, the bowling alley is the analogy for me that what happens is that you are not going to get strikes every time in life. Okay. Especially me, if you're bowling. But what happens is that if if you're in good treatment, you have bumpers in the, in the gutters so that you're going to go off to the side. And the more you're engaged in treatment, the more there's this bumper in the gutter that sends you back and that gets you back to refocus. So The presumption is all of us are going to have this vision and we are going to go off track. 
that's what happens. We're going off track. We're human beings. We're going to get upset about things. We're going to have a bad day. Maybe our biorhythms are off. And we're going to like go back to our old behavior. Something terrible happens and we're triggered. We're going to go off of our track. But what treatment is about is what are we building up into the gutter so that we get gently shoved back into the middle so we're back on track. And the more we go off and come back, go off and come back, the more we're building these muscles of doing it differently. It's not about not going off. It's about treatment to me is about how do you not go as I've done. I mean, I don't know if anybody else has done it, but I actually threw a, the ball down the bowling alley lane and I wound up three lanes down. Don't ask me how. I didn't know I was that strong. But what you want to do is treatment is about you're just going off less and less every time and coming back faster. So important to remember uh, when folks first come into meetings that when they're doing it live or on Zoom in a group format like we offer on Allies in Recovery that it's the big picture. It's the what's going to happen. It's go five years down the road. And we have to get them in craft to a place where they're going to remove one word from the sentence when they respond to their loved one next time. I always feel like we're, it's like the train and the emergency brakes on the train. And it's like we're taking these poor families from going whipping around the world at incredibly high speed to trying to get them to focus on um, what did you say when he came home late? And then how did he respond? And what did that make you do? And it's really hard to do, but it's the richness and the change in the quality of your life comes from just taking the negative out of the sentence, putting a smile into an observation that you liked. You know, it's in these tiny little maneuvers all day long, every day, you could do it all the time or none of the time, it's completely up to you. You could do it to uh, having a Burger King moment. So it may be the Burger King guy at noon, try and make a little connection, smile. I mean, it's such a rewarding thing to do for yourself, let alone for your loved one. And it really does, revolutionize it just revolutionizes the relationship pretty quickly when your loved one realizes you're not out to dagger them therapy and treatment and this process is about going from being unconscious to conscious so unconscious is about being reactive so you don't even know why you're reacting but something happens and you just have this reaction there's no awareness on your part until after the fact this process is about what craft is about what all treatment is about is slowing things down so that you then become more conscious and with consciousness becomes choice. That's what all of this is about is you have choices. And what you were talking about before Lori is that the helplessness is because we basically walk around feeling like we don't have any control. We don't have any choices. And what we're doing is slowing things down increasing the toolbox that you have to choose from, the bag of tricks that you have to choose from. And then as you gain awareness, as you become more conscious, as the things that have been buried deep inside of you rise to awareness, which is sometimes very disturbing, by the way, but that's the work, is that you bring up these disturbing things from your past, from the past with this person, from your own life, and then work it through and take it apart and see it while it's happening, before it's happening, after it's happening, you then get to have choice. And choice is where that power comes from that you're talking about, Lori. Once you have choices, you then have power. If you're just 
reactive, unconscious, automatic, you don't have any choice. That's what's going to feel powerless to you. So that's the work that we're suggesting. And that's the work that your loved ones will be doing as they're getting to be more engaged in their own treatment. And that's a process. So we have to respect the process, not react to the process, not get panicked that the process is not looking like a particular thing. It's not a straight line. It's about people getting engaged and thinking about things and doing things differently, which is, again, trying and failing. And if we give our loved ones the space to try and fail things and then they come back to it, that's the power. Then they have more consciousness. And there's added benefits, I think, to all of this, because once you start to have the power, it's actually control over yourself, right? It's control over me. I'm not freaking out all the time. And I'm able to influence. And I do see change because I changed the way I behaved. People have to change the way they respond to my behavior. But there's these added benefits of this sense of calmness, this sense of that, wow, I'm doing I'm doing good, not only for myself, but for others in my life, because it also gets transformed to everybody. Like I use it with everybody now. And I find my communication with people is just so it's, it's just 10 times better. And I just have this sense of, I love connecting with everybody. So it's like bringing me this, this sense of peace, this sense of, wow, I'm noticing, I really heard what they had to say. And it it was, you know, it was really important to me. And oh my gosh, I didn't put my own agenda in there. Wow, it wasn't needed. And it's, uh, I don't know, I do, I see other families coming in and, and man, oh man, people are becoming empowered and calmer, which doesn't mean that there still isn't conflict within their families and difficult situations that come up. They're just better equipped to deal with it. And that's change. And this is all about change. I feel like what we're talking about here is this opportunity to grow and change. Really, that's what we're talking about here, because we're asking you to create boundaries so that you could actually calm down. Because if your job is beyond your pay grade, then you're going to feel overwhelmed. I just want to go back to that one thing that you were talking about with the superheroes. I don't think People who are loved ones believe that they have superpowers. But when I'm witnessing it, that's what it feels like they think they have. Even if it's not conscious, it's like, I'm going to save this person. If I do this, then some great thing is going to happen. That's what I'm talking about with superheroes. It's not this sense of power. It's a sense of your lack of control makes you want to do things that are not appropriate. That's how I see it. It's over, overblown and really... I really feel like our work is to get out of the way so the other person could step forward into their own power and heal themselves. I think we've used many analogies today. So I think the summary is analogies are very good for growth because they could give you kind of a visual about what you want to do. We've been talking about boundaries. We've been talking about increasing awareness, how loved ones can actually add to treatment as opposed to be an impediment to treatment or to over-engage in treatment. If you're over-engaged, then you actually wind up becoming an impediment. So how do you right-size yourself in terms of this treatment process? And, you know, as we talked about, you can give the therapist 
plenty of information, but if you're looking for interaction from the therapist, that might be out of bounds. Unless that's the agreement, it's out of bounds. And if sometimes if the agreement doesn't feel good to you, like you don't want to be giving that information, you have the right to say no to the treatment providers as well as this doesn't feel comfortable to me. Because sometimes the treatment providers might be coming from a more punitive or hardline position that you don't feel good about. And you get to say, I'm not willing to do that. So this is your process as well. And what craft is all about is that the loved one is engaging in a process of healing themselves to be able to respond differently. The appropriate response is to look at your part, what you're doing for yourself, what you feel good about, and, and how to really be orienting in a more positive, loving, caring way without feeling like the boundaries are being taken advantage of. When we say boundaries, we mean you feel like you're there, this is an acceptable boundary to you. And if it's not, then you get to say this isn't working for me without it being punitive. So ladies, we started off with treatment trauma or difficulties like conflicting ideas with treatment, the impact on the family, the impact on the loved one. And then it kind of evolved into everything that Kayla was talking about. So I hope our listeners get some information out of this and it makes your journey a little bit a little bit easier, or at least you feel connected to our allies in recovery community. So thank you, everybody. And we'll be back again next week. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode of Coming Up for Air spoke to you. If you're listening in today on a podcast platform that isn't the Allies member site, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating. This helps others find the show more easily. If you have a suggestion for a new topic or a guest for the show, please reach out through the Contact Us form on alliesinrecovery.net. Special thanks to our hosts, our guests, and our production team.